In November of 1863, Abraham Lincoln traveled by train to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, because he had been asked to give a speech memorializing the losses suffered there during that great battle. And of course, I'm talking about the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln was not the main speaker, by the way. That was a man named Edward Everett, the great orator and former president of Harvard. Lincoln would, in fact, follow this great statesman in the lineup, and Lincoln would be sitting in the shadow of Edward Everett, uh, and that was something that Lincoln was content to do. Well, the audience that day was, was about 9,000 people gathered in a semicircle around the stage that had been hand-constructed, a platform hand-constructed for that event. And up first was Edward Everett, and he spoke for about two hours. Now, this dude was educated, he was eloquent, he had elocution, which simply meant he spoke clearly, and he spoke for a long time. Lincoln rose at the conclusion of Everett's message, his speech, and he gave him a hearty congratulations. He walked over to the podium, and he pulled a sheet from his coat, and he began to deliver what would come to be called the Gettysburg Address. It lasted two minutes. Two minutes. When he was done, the, the people, they, they stood motionless. They were just looking at him. They were, they were transfixed upon Lincoln. And, and, and he, was, he, he was just standing there not understanding what took place because they were standing there and they didn't know what to do because they were momentarily stunned by both the brevity and the beauty of what he had just shared. Well, Lincoln, seeing their silence, felt that he had failed to capture the moment and so he turned, and to the first person he met, as he was walking away from the podium, he said, and I quote, it is a flat failure. The people are disappointed. Now, you know what I find so fascinating about that story is the first man spoke for two hours, and he's entirely forgotten by history. Did you know who Edward Everett was? I certainly didn't prior to, listening, prior to hearing this. Lincoln spoke, not for two hours, but for two minutes, 286 words, and his speech is still being memorized by school students 150 years later. And one of the points I want to draw from that is that there are times where when what's really needed is simple, short, and straight to the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 takes us to one of those times. There is a father. He is speaking to his son. And he yearns to pass on the fruit of his experience that he has gathered over the years. And so he begins in the beginning of chapter 4 by saying, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you might gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. And he continues throughout that chapter to lay down certain ideas, certain maxims that are designed to arm the son until he climaxes with a message that is short and simple and straight to the heart in verse 23 where he says, Keep your heart with all vigilance 
For from it flows the springs of life. Now, this morning, I want to follow the example of Abraham Lincoln. Actually, I want to follow the example of Solomon and offer to you two short and simple points from this passage. Last week, if you were here, you may remember that we learned that God has installed in each of us a desire for glory, that we have a factory-installed glory drive that yearns to magnify. It's in each of us, and it's always reaching out. It's always seeking to fix our, our heart upon something. Well, this week, we are looking at the engine where that glory drive is mounted, and that is the human heart. And we're going to do so through this passage, a passage that, as you're going to see, cuts straight to the heart of why we do what we do. Why do you do what you do? That's what we're going to talk about. i got two main points and two points of application. Here's the first main point. Our heart is the seat of desire. We're in a series on desire. Our heart is the seat of desire. Okay, this point's going to address the potency of the human heart, the power of the human heart. And I think to interpret it most correctly, we have to explain the latter half of this verse first and then work our way back to the beginning. And so this is how Solomon says it. From it, from the heart, from it flows the springs of life. So let's stop there, and let's just take a few minutes. Let's interact with the text a little bit. Let's ask a few questions of the text itself. First, beginning with, what is the heart? What is the heart? Talking about the heart, what is that? Well, in Scripture, the heart is the center of life. It is one's character, one's will, one's personality, one's mind, one's emotions, one's inner life. All of these things are captured by the scriptural idea of the heart. It's who we really are. It's who we really are. It's what generates the deluge of desires as we sit at our desk and daydream during the day. It's what draws our heart to the wrong things at times when we're online. It's what fires our emotions when we don't get what we want when we want it. Conversely, it's also what helps us to love our enemies. It helps us to be kind to those who mistreat us. It is the real you. It's the real us, not the Facebook version of us. It's the real us, not the Twitter version. You know, we can snap a selfie and we can craft any profile we want and post it online these days. We're used to a Facebook and a Twitter kind of life, a Facebook and a Twitter kind of world. But here God moves beyond Facebook, beyond this idea that we can post and manage an image that, and craft it in a way that other people can look at it and be pleased. Or, and he moves from that posted image to my heart, to who I really am. And this passage reminds us that our heart is always posted before God, and it also directs the course of our life, that our heart is a kind of steering wheel that drives us in the direction that we desire to go. And so God, this morning, is putting this question on the map. What do you think steers your life? What do you think ultimately defines the direction that you are going in? 
And people would answer that question in a lot of different ways. Somebody might say, well, there are good things that do that for me. It's exercise or sports, my job, my friends, even my wife, my, my husband, my parents. Some people might believe it's, it's something that's bad that ultimately directs their life. It's, it's, it's my past, a crime that was committed against me. It's evil spirits. It's, it's a handicap that I've suffered since I was born. Scripture, scripture doesn't, doesn't render those things as insignificant. It just drills beneath those things and says, no, here's what it is. It's the human heart. So that's what the heart is. Now let's continue to ask our questions of the text. How is the heart's potency portrayed? How is the heart's power portrayed in this text? Well, it says, from it, from the heart, from it flows the springs of life. The literal Hebrew word for, for springs there means outgoings. It, it, it calls forth this picture of this endless flow that's always coming from the heart, always moving forward from the heart. I, I used earlier the idea of a steering wheel, the heart's a steering, steering wheel. Another metaphor is the heart is this, this kind of uncapped oil well it's always churning, always pumping, always producing. Something is always flowing it. One word that captures the idea of the heart is that it's active. The heart is never passive. The heart is always active. In this passage, Solomon is trying to communicate to one of his sons or all of his sons that your heart is always active, always churning, always producing, always pumping something out. Always, something's always flowing from it. The heart is a, is a manufacturing machine. And this is a really important point. If we, if, in fact, if we walk away with nothing else, walk away with the idea that my heart is always active, it's never passive. My heart is a manufacturing machine. You say, okay, Dave, well, what does the heart manufacture? Well, a clothing manufacturer produces clothing, pants, shirts. A steel manufacturer produces steel. The heart always manufactures desires. From the heart is always flowing desires. In fact, another way to look at this is that we are born as, with a heart that is from the, from the very beginning producing desires and is looking for something to fix those desires upon. Another way to say that is we are born worshipers. We're born worshipers. I mean, psychology tells us we are what we feel. Sociology tells us we are where we've come from. Eastern religion tells us we are what we think. Reincarnation tells us we are what we were. The Bible tells us we are what we worship. That the active heart is always seeking to attach its affections to something. That, that, that the, act, the heart is active in life, and each and every day it's looking to fix its, att its attachments, fix its affections, put its desires somewhere to send them out in some location. See, this is why the first command in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me, is so serious because God, from the very beginning, from the very first command, wanted to establish where he wanted our affections directed. 
And then he says, I'm a jealous God. In other words, I don't want anything relocating your worship from me. I don't want anything displacing your desires from the only place that they should be and from the very place that you were created to give them, me. And all of life is this battle to fix our affections upon God and move them away from these alternative gods that we tend to attach them to. So the heart is this potent thing that is presented to us in Scripture. Well, here's another question we can ask the text. If the heart is active, what are some of the activities that are specifically portrayed in Scripture? What are some of the things that it does specifically in Scripture? Well, here's one. The heart produces how you speak. It produces our speech patterns. Christ said it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. Listen to this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks so here we learn that our heart produces our speech patterns. If we're somebody who's known for kindness, it's undoubtedly because there is kindness in our heart that is overflowing, that is, that is churning out. If we are known for foul language, it is because of what fills our heart. And this may be a good opportunity to just hit the pause button and ask the question, so what what has your speech said lately about your heart? What, what is it saying? What's actively flowing out of you? Is it complaining? Crude? I, I think we have, to, we have to learn to pay attention to speech patterns because they are windows into our heart. One of my, one of my kids once mentioned a pattern that they, they saw in me that w when I observed certain behaviors in my kids that, that I felt were over the top or maybe even sinful, I would not only become angry, but when reporting it back to them, I would exaggerate it. Have you ever done that? I, I would exaggerate it, and I think I did that at times just to try to punish them by exaggerating their behavior and helping them to understand how bad, how bad it really is. But here's what I want to say about that. It was my heart that was producing that trending in my parenting. So your, your colleague ignores you, or somebody gossips about you, or you're having some kind of difficulty where you're, you're speaking in a certain way. Well, our response in that situation reveals what's in our heart. So our heart produces our speech patterns. But also, secondly, our heart, what, what flows out of our heart is what can defile our lives. And I think about Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is what defiles a person. This 
is what defiles a person. Jesus says it's not, not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of us that defiles us. See, the principle here is that the desires that fill our heart flow from our heart. That which fills our heart flows from our heart, and that's what ultimately defiles us. It's not something that's put into us. It's not temptation that's created outside of us. It's not an environment. It's not a circumstance. It's not how people treat us. What ultimately defiles us is what comes out of us. One day, one of my, one of my sons was mowing the lawn, and, uh, and the, the cap on the engine was loose, on the engine oil was loose. And once the, once the mower engine began to heat up, I mean, uh, he struck oil, and uh, it was a geyser. I mean, I'm talking, you know, we're talking Jed Clampett here. Um, I'm glad some of you know what that reference is. I feel like I'm dating myself even by saying it. Now, since I don't change the oil often, which is just a diplomatic way to say I don't ever change the oil, this, this slimy sludge just kind of began to erupt from the engine, covering the lawnmower, covering my son. And, and that's a helpful illustration because what, what it illustrates is, is that original sin, Adam and Eve, and what Adam and Eve passed along to us, original sin filled our hearts with depravity. And, and what happens in your life and in my life is that these circumstances come along. Events take place. The way people treat us. The circumstances of life come along and they heat our engine. And what's in our engine tends to come out of our engine. So your spouse is overspending on the budget in an incredible way, or your kids are not listening to you in the way that you expect, or the IRS is knocking at your door, and you're beginning to feel things, and you're beginning to feel anxious, and you're starting to say things that you don't feel are really like you. What's going on there? Well, the engine of your heart is being heated by the circumstances, by the events, and those temptations are heating the engine, they are testing the heart, and what is in the engine then comes out of the engine. It doesn't put it in the engine. None of those situations put the sin in the heart. None of those situations put the oil in the engine. The heat doesn't fill the engine. It reveals what's in the engine. The heat doesn't fill the heart with sin. It reveals what's in the heart. So the man who says to his wife, you are making me angry. No, she's not. The teenager says, my parents just drive me crazy. They make me so angry. No, they don't. They simply reveal your heart. They simply reveal that which is already there. No one can make you sin. Let me say that again. No one can make you sin. One more time. No one can make us sin. Computer can't make you sin. Spouse can't make you sin. An ethical professor or an ethical mechanic cannot make you sin. They can certainly present temptations to us, but they can't make us sin. Are you seeing it here? Are you, are you seeing the incredible potency that the human heart has? And here's what's really amazing. 
the, the gospel, this is where the gospel becomes really amazing because Christ not only saves us, but one of the ways he saves us is by changing the desires of the heart so that our lives can change, so that our lives can change, can follow the desires that are changed, which is why we're going to talk in the next couple of weeks about conversion and the nature of conversion and how God acts upon us to change us. John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, there's this promise in Scripture that as we come to Jesus and flee to Jesus, he does a work that penetrates down so deep that actually changes us on the level of desire. It, it, the, the cross is amazing because it's, it's capable of delivering new desires to us. And apart from Jesus, we can't get the desires we need something from outside of us to be able to get the desires to keep us moving in the right direction. We need Jesus. It's one of the things I was sharing last week in the message where I was telling you a little bit about my story, and I was saying one of the ways that I knew I was converted is because there was this transformation that drilled all the way down to the level of my affections, to the level of my desires. I knew that, that at one time I wanted the things of the world, and now I wanted the things of God. I was still pursuing the things of the world for a period of time, but there was something inside of me that had changed. I wanted God. Maybe you, you can relate to that this morning. You, you want to pursue a direction toward God, but you feel like you don't have the power. Believe in Jesus. Here's the promise. God can change what flows from your heart. So all of that is, is the first point, point, that our heart is the seat of desire. Second point, our heart requires a vigilant guard. Our heart requires a vigilant guard. So the first point was about the potency of the heart. This point is about the protection of the heart. Because of the first point that our heart directs our life, now comes this command. Keep your heart, how? With all vigilance. So the Father's appeal here couldn't be more clear or more compelling or more commanding. He says, he says son, post a guard on that heart. Establish a sentry. Protect and patrol that heart daily. It's almost as if the writer is saying here, okay, he says, the heart is valuable, the heart is vulnerable, be vigilant. The heart is valuable, the heart is vulnerable. Actually, if we include the first point, the heart is powerful, the heart is valuable, the heart is vulnerable, be vigilant. Let's look at those a little bit. Let's look at, let's look at why we need to be vigilant, because the heart is valuable. Wayne Gruden says of this, he says the, the, the proper translation is, above all guarding, keep your heart. Above all guarding, keep your heart. In other words, there, there, we recognize that there's some serious treasure. There's something very valuable that God has placed within us. It is a bank where our desires are kept. And because it is a bank, it's valuable. And because it is a bank, we must approach our heart as if it is the most valuable asset that we have and therefore must guard it. 
Think about the things that you assign value to and the steps that you take to protect them. Money we put in the bank. We lock up our homes when we leave. We put our kids in car seats when they need to be in car seats. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I worked, worked at Three Rivers Stadium for a number of years. Part of working there, I was in, in security, and there was a Golden Glove player, Dave Parker. Anybody remember Dave Parker? He played for the, played for the, did I say Steelers? I meant Pirates. Dave Parker played for the Pirates, and at one point, a fan had threatened Dave Parker, and so they insisted that there be guards around Dave Parker every time he left the field or came onto the field. Somebody had to be glued to him. Somebody had to escort him. Why? Because we take great measures to protect the things that we think are valuable. That's what they were doing. That's what you do and I do. So here's Solomon's call. Above all, protect, lock up, keep it under wraps, protect your Now, I don't know about you, but my challenge is I don't think I protect it enough. Some, sometimes I find myself meditating and dwelling on things that are only going to foul my heart, feeding my heart by stewing on problems or, or people. I mean, it just happened this past week. Just this past week, I found myself fixated on someone who I thought had done me wrong, and I found myself ultimately in that, in that track of thought, audibly speaking out loud what I would say to them if I had the opportunity. Uh, you, know you're, you, know, you know you've traveled down the wrong road when there's nobody around and you're talking. Like you're a lawyer and they're in the stand and you're, you're cross-examining them. And oh, you're brilliant. The points that you're making are stunning because they're not there to respond. It's my heart being revealed have. Listen, on the last day, it's not like the heart is going to be a section of the final exam. It will be the final exam. That's what the final exam is on, the heart. And I'm not implying by that that what we do is irrelevant. It certainly is not irrelevant, but God looks at the heart. God is far more interested in why we do things. That's where he starts his examination. Why? Why do you do those things? Why that particular entertainment choice? Why so much screen time during the week? Why do, why do you seem to run to these snacks when you feel really stressed? Why those friends? Why are you hanging with those friends in particular? See, see God calls us to guard our hearts with all vigilance. Why? Because it's valuable. But there's a second reason as well. It's not only valuable, it's It's vulnerable. The heart is, guard your heart with all vigilance. It implies that the heart is, is delicate, it's, it's fragile, it's, it's defenseless, which is why we're called to guard it. It's, it's susceptible. It, it can come easily out of tune. I, I, I heard a message by Wayne Grudem where he was talking about the Puritan, John Flavel, or Flavel. Um, he, he likened the heart to an instrument and he said, you, you tune it, and it sounds great, but you just bump it a little bit, or you allow it to sit unused, and it loses its tune. 
And so similar to an instrument, we must with our heart tune it and attend to it daily, which is why Solomon uses the words, keep your heart with all vigilance. Those are strong words because the heart needs daily attention. The heart needs charged do you charge your heart? Are you thinking about your heart that way? Are you thinking about it as something you must guard and protect and be vigilant over? Charging our, I, mean, I got an iPhone. I mean, I charge that thing. I mean, it seems like I have to charge it 20 times a day, which is, a, which is something I'd like to take up with Apple, but that's a different problem. I have to keep charging it daily in order to keep my phone. It only works well if I keep my phone, if I charge my phone. Here's the point. The heart is valuable. The heart is vulnerable. Be vigilant. Because an unguarded heart is a vulnerable heart. An unguarded heart is a heart that is easily invaded. You know, the first military action of the American Revolution was the seizing of Fort Ticonderoga in May 10th, 1775. What's most curious about that particular occupation was that there was not a shot fired. 175 men from Vermont, led by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen, slipped right through the front gate of the fort and captured the entire British regiment. Why? Well, because the sentries that were supposed to be guarding, that were supposed to be watching, that they weren't there. They were sleeping. They weren't posted, they weren't watching, they weren't expecting, they weren't guarding. And when sentries fall asleep, forts get taken. When we don't guard our hearts, our hearts get taken. Our hearts become captive. And so I want to move from those two main points to just a couple of specific applications that we can make. There's, there's hundreds maybe thousands of applications. I'm going to just give you two. Sentries, two specific areas where our sentries can often be nodding off, they, even snoring loudly in the, in the face of these sentries. First one is this, the sentry over my stuff. The sentry over my stuff. Okay, let, let's, just, let's just go back and let's import what we've learned already into how we're going to apply this. So because the heart is active, it instinctively desires. It's just manufacturing desires all the time. So because the heart is active, it instinctively desires. Because the heart is sinful, it will tend to corrupt desires. So we know that. So now we apply that to stuff. It will tend to corrupt our desires for stuff and want us and impel us or compel us to gorge on creation rather than steward creation. And because sinful cravings are often insatiable cravings, which means you know when we have sinful desires, we think if we just do this, it's going to satisfy us, but it never does. And so we keep doing it because it's ultimately an insatiable desire. Sinful cravings are insatiable cravings. We never find happiness. The sentry never says, halt! Who goes there? No, we, we just keep doing it time and time again. So in the category of my stuff, we, we buy a TV. But we're not really happy with just having a TV because a TV is just a TV. A TV is nothing without a DVD. 
So we buy a TV and a DVD, and then we think, wait a minute, I need to get a satellite dish because that'll nicely complement the, the DVD player and the TV. So I get a TV, a DVD player, and a satellite dish, only to realize, wait a minute, I need on-demand movies, which is a very telling name for a product, by the way. On-demand. I'm an American. I should have it anytime I want on-demand. And so this unholy swap occurs where we exchange stewardship for obsession, using stuff for idolizing stuff, giving for hoarding, and it just never satisfies. I read a book a while back that was titled The Progress Paradox, and the writer was describing a paradox, particularly seen, a paradox is an apparent contradiction, particularly seen among Westerns and Americans where it doesn't matter how much they get, they don't ever seem to be satisfied. And I brought a quote. The guy's name is Greg Easterbrook. He said, quote, the incredible rise in living standards for the majority of Americans and Western Europeans has made them affluent, healthier, more comfortable, more free, and sovereign over even taller piles of stuff, but has not made them any happier. Because stuff can't satisfy, but what happens is our heart affixes the stuff, and rather than wanting to steward our stuff for the glory of God, that glory drive gets directed in another way, and we spin our wheels round and round. And so we have to, we have to fight desires for stuff, growing desires for stuff, being unsatisfied with the amount of stuff we have. And I want to give you two ways to do that. You know, what would, what would the sentry say if he was awake over our stuff? And one of the things I thought of is he would say, consider your true riches. Consider your true riches. In other words, the best way to kill the more monster, I want more, I need more, I'm only going to be satisfied with more. The best way to kill the more monster is to replace it with a superior desire. One of the things we're going to talk about in the, in the context of this series is how ultimately change takes place, not by denying all desires or even denying bad desires, but by replacing them with superior desires for God. And in replacing them, we displace evil desires. So consider your true riches that you have in and because of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In other words, if we measure our wealth by our stuff, yeah, we may be in poverty, but if we measure it through Calvary, through the wrath of God that was satisfied at the cross, through the, our sins being erased, through our soul being redeemed, then we are immediately transformed into the riches of the rich. And so consider your true riches. That's one of the ways to kill, deny the more monster. Second one is give generously. Give. See, here's the thing. Few things kill the coveting heart more than depriving it of stuff and giving our stuff to other people who may be more needy. It, it kind of suffocates the miser within, and it, it fuels our desires for God and our desires to, 
to, to give as God has given. See, and, and by the way, I, I think that in Scripture, that's one of the reasons why God calls us to consistent tithes and offerings within the church. It is a protection against covetousness. One of the ways to understand the spiritual disciplines, what, what spiritual disciplines do is they install in our lives a rhythm against certain bad desires. So I have, I have daily devotions, and that establishes a rhythm in my life where my desires for autonomy from God are pushed back, and they're replaced by desires for God. I fast so that my, my, my desire to just eat all the time, my cravings to eat more than I should, you know, they're pushed back, and good desires for God are replaced them. I give, I give because it is a, is a consistent discipline that oils the cheap heart so that it doesn't become too stingy. It, it kills that hyper-frugality that, that can tend to take all of us over at different points of the, in our life. And, and we have to think about this because it kind of reorders and reorganizes how we think about our stuff, how we think about our money and our possessions. And, and the reason why most people in the West don't give to the poor or even give to their churches is because what typically happens is they, they choose a standard of living that makes it impossible to give. And then they blame tight finances for their inability to give. And, and, and what I'm saying in saying that is that, that they don't see it as desires being revealed, desires determining their obedience, desires determining their direction. So post the century, post it over stuff. And the second to last one is the century over my service. And we're going to wrap up after this. The century over my service. So what I'm saying here is that a good century will listen closely to how the heart responds, meaning how the mouth responds when a person, when one, when I am called upon to serve, to serve. And here's why. If there's one message that Jesus wanted us to get about him, it was that he came not to be served, but to serve. And he wants us to be like him. He wants us to be like him. So how we respond where there are opportunities to be like Jesus will tell us much about whether that sentry is posted in doing his job or her job. So I ask you a question this morning. Where do you serve the lost? Where do you serve God's people? Is there somewhere in particular that you can immediately point to and say, yeah, it's right there. Here's where I have installed this discipline in my life to push back those evil desires and to move towards superior desires. Where is it? And if you're unable to answer, don't be condemned, but do realize that God may be reaching out to you this morning through this very message. See, a, a good sentry will help us to understand that serving God means serving God's people. Serving God is not this super spiritual thing that that we just do that doesn't have anything to do with his people. Serving God means serving his people. We say, God, I want to serve you. I love you. I want to serve you. I want to give my life to you. Let me serve you. God says, great. 
great, thank you for wanting to serve me. I'll set your alarm clock because I've got a widow I want you to serve early tomorrow morning and it's going to cost you something. Or grab your bucket because the fellowship group is going to be doing a service project in their community. Or, or get ready to use your gifts in the church for doing the medical clinic that's coming up. See, I mean, that, that begins to reorient us a little bit because we think serving God is supposed to be just this generic, abstract thing that doesn't have any teeth, it doesn't have any feet. We think, Lord, you're not feeling me. You're not getting it. I want to serve you. God says, no, you're not feeling me. As you've done to the least of my brothers, you have done it unto me. You say, well, Lord, I'm not sure you get it. I wasn't looking for... For that, I was looking for something maybe a little higher profile. I don't mind serving people, but I want to serve them in a particular way. I want to serve them with my gifts in a way that's compatible, in a way that's suitable, in a way that, that's fitting to my station in life. God says, well, one of us doesn't get it. I'm not sure it's, it's me, though. Because service, to be service, has to be that. It has to be service. If I'm going to start with your ego or I'm going to start with your satisfaction, then it's not service at all. It's nothing more than enlightened self-interest. Let's do this. Let's start with my people. Let's start with where my people need me, where my people need to be cared for. See, one of the best ways to guard our heart with all vigilance is to get our heart thinking about others. Back to the Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Not looking out merely for your own interests. I mean, it's almost as if Scripture acknowledges that we're going to do that. Not look out merely for your own interests, but also the interests of others. See, we know we're growing up in Jesus when we're able to shift from our own interests to the interests of others without smelling the clutch burning all the time. We're able to make those shifts. By the way, the illustration that I mentioned earlier about the medical clinic, that was a real one. That's on September 13th. We need medical help. We need advocates. We need people to get the word out. And there are people here that have medical experiences. I know, I know there's a temptation. Hey, I do that every day. I do that Monday through Friday. I'm supposed to do it on Saturday morning. God says, yeah, yeah, actually, yes. That's why I trained you that way. Maybe you even do it well. And you could help the poor and serve them. See, the, the point is that God allows us, God, God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the misery of self-obsession. And so he comes to us through his word. He comes to us through passages like this. And, he, and here's his call to us. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So I leave you with, with this. Remember this. Your heart is valuable. Your heart is vulnerable. Let's be vigilant.